Welcome to Between Two Curators, the podcast where two friends and, well, curators discuss art, life, and what, or rather, who inspires them. I'm Jen. And I'm Cliff. And in this episode, we are so fortunate to have with us Ez Devlin, who is designer extraordinaire, and she creates what I'm going to term visual magic uh, for exhibitions, for theatre and opera, for pop concerts, and also, famously, for the 2012 London Olympics closing ceremony. Uh, welcome, Ez. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome, Ez. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Great. I um, just wanted to kick off, Ez, with um, just a bit of bit, a process question, maybe. A little bit of a, a sort of back-in-the-studio research question. And it was sort of how do you, you work with so many different people, so many different venues, um, how does that process start for you? Um, one thing I know that's really key is is sketching, and um, you've you've mentioned um, things like a thinking sketch versus uh, a sketch of an idea that's already complete. And I, and I wondered if you could just um, give us some insight into how you set off when you've got a new project that's under development. Yeah, it's really interesting that you ask this question. Um, we were talking about this, in fact, yesterday with Wayne McGregor, the choreographer, and we were talking about one of the prime materials being the energy between the collaborators in a room um, and how you actually direct and form and carve that in air. So it starts as something usually that's entirely intangible because nearly everything I do, even when it's work that just has my name on it in an art gallery, nearly everything I do is still collaborative. Uh, if I'm making a, you know, a sculpture in my own name, it's still a collaboration with the fabricator uh, about how we're going to make it. You know, there are still infinite uh, layers and calibrations of collaboration in, in, in every single phase of the process. And the first part is always intangible and it's just dealing in air and sort of, you know, you feel an idea begin to go up like a balloon and then you feel it weighted down and you have to sort of cut the sandbags off it and let it up again. So that's always the first process. And then there's sort of, pinning it almost like a butterfly. Uh, and that is done in these marks on paper usually um, in, in, the, in the form of sketches. And, and as Cliff just mentioned there, as I look back, which you know, during this lockdown period, we've been taking the opportunity to write this big monographic book of the past 20 years that I've been dithering for two years and not writing. And I now have no excuse. And we're looking at every single sketch. You know, people are surprised, but there's, there's you know, Kajin that's all been archived. And, and the ones that uh, uh, were made in the moment of just trying to pin and capture uh, a part of a process to remember it um, are, are the ones that are so very valuable to me um, because they just try and take something that's moving and capture it in flight. They're almost like those Edward Mybridge uh, mm. or, or humans in motion uh, capturing series. And I often think about things in series and the sketches are often just capturing moments, then moving on and capturing another moment and then moving on. Oh, That's incredible. Um, and I was wondering, so as I first came across your work from more of a visual perspective and then going into theatre, but when I was looking, I went and down a rabbit hole and just fell in love with all the work that you've done with Elvie, in particular, the Cruise Rio project. I was like, wow. And then I was thinking... You use a lot of models. I watched the BBC documentary and there was the sketches. Is it the same approach when it comes from fashion to theatre or does it does it vary? 
It, it varies like any evening conversation with any of your friends there. <laughs> yeah. You are always you and they are always them. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the process... Uh, this is true. <laughs> you know, the process of me being me always sort of, uh, you know, sends to send its, tends to send its tentacles out mm. uh, in, a, in a similar kind of uh, rhythm. Uh, and yet who I meet at the other end of those uh, antennae uh, will very much depend on project to project. And with Nikola Jeskia, who is my sole collaborator in fashion, um, you know, I've done eight pieces of, of work with Nicola uh, since 2014, which is a big body of work, actually. Uh, it's sort of in comparison with some of the other sort of more enduring collaborations that, that I've been fortunate enough to sustain. And of course, you know, a sustained collaboration is a very, very special thing because with each one you develop uh, the language more deeply and you uh, develop a, a greater uh, sense of shared vocabulary and shared grammar. Um, and, and with Nicola, that's what's happened, which is probably why that, that work may appeal to you uh, is because you, you, you know, perhaps that is communicated through the work that it is, you know, talk about thinking sketches. This is like giant uh, thinking train of thought in series, you know, over 18 pieces uh, since 2014. Um, so there's, there's a real continuity there. And because we don't, it's a very pure conversation that, because we really don't talk to each other very often. We only talk, you know, in the lead up, probably three months before each project happens, we have a conversation and it leads to often a rather large scale, rather, you know, highlighted event, rather seen event. And then we only talk again about the next one. We don't really see each other much in between. Um, so there's quite a sort of purposefulness and a purity to that uh, body of work. Thanks very much, as for that. Um, and, I, and I wanted to take the, those ideas of collaboration and, and put them into the to the huge scale side of things. Um, some of these most amazing um, visuals and staging that you've created for um, pop and rock concerts, uh, for like Beyonce, for Adele, and U2, and Stormzy. Um, <laughs> These these are events which are are massive. I mean, this is f so different to I think seeing a, a contemplative piece in a in a gallery with you know either yourself or maybe a few others around you. But you know when you've got eighty to two hundred thousand screaming fans, um, it's <laughs> such an event. And I and I wonder if you could speak a bit about um, not only the collaboration with those um, artists. Uh, but also how, how you consider and you weigh the audience and the, the idea of spectacle within all of that. I mean, the first thing to say, just as you're speaking there, is I am an addict and I am on horrible cold turkey from my fix of the sound of 100,000 people. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, and I've, I've been speaking to quite a lot of my colleagues about this who work in the same area and we are suffering that lack of, uh, we realize now how much we took it for granted and how much we depend on just hearing that roar, mm, you know, yeah. just mm. that energy. Yeah. Energy that combined with, if I'm talking earlier in answer to your earlier question about this kind of will o' the wisp, you know, grasping at this little wisp of energy that begins the whole process. Mm -hmm. To the Parc de Prance or, you know, Wembley Stadium or any one of those Olympic stadiums and you're standing there and you hear a hundred thousand energies go off all in the same direction. Mm. You know, it's like that you do a yoga class and they tell you to all on at once or all point the down dog in the same direction and something happens. But if you have a hundred thousand all, you know, responding to the same piece of music, it's powerful. You know, it's incredible. Whatever. Yeah. It might be your taste, it might be not, but you can't deny 
the power of it. And it's the same if you're watching a sporting event. There's, there's an immense directionality uh, of energy in those. And yeah, I mean, one, one of the key ingredients in the room at the beginning of a collaboration is this energy in the room. And then one of the key ingredients when you get to the stadium or the arena is the audience's preconception, the audience's anticipation, what they bring with them into that room. And, and it's the day they've had. It's, you know, they bought the ticket, they queued online to get the ticket, they queued outside to get their spot in the room. They had to negotiate the complications of going into a sporting venue to see an arts uh, performance. Um, and they brought all of this hope, all of this, uh, you know, pre-existing relationship with the music with them. Um, and, and the role of us who, who help put these shows on is to, yeah, I mean, I've said this before, but fundamentally to not fuck up for them. Um, and <laughs> stay in the balloon. The balloon comes in blown up, right? It's a different process. The balloon comes in pre-blown. It's a beautiful balloon that's been brought into the room and it fills the whole space. And really it's natural inclination is just to gradually, and you have to keep it up. Um, so, so we do it like that. And, and as we're dealing, you know, in audience anticipation being one ingredient and time being the other ingredient, we're really mm. meeting out the time and saying, you know, how does this hour and a half play out? And we're, we're dealing in chemicals. You know, the audience come hyped up, they're, they're adrenalized, that they are full of cortisol, you know, they are anxious because they've invested in a lot of this there, you know, predisposed perhaps to be disappointed because how could it be possibly as good as they hoped? Um, and one has to calibrate almost like a doctor the different levels of chemistry that will be going on. And, and then there are very clear sort of synesthetic ways to do that because we know that big, powerful, you know, tungsten light will do one thing, whereas demure, thin beams of laser will do another. We know that certain chords will, um, uh, you know, will set off certain chemi chemicals in the audience's mind as well and certain uh, reference points visually will take them to various places and, and how we organize the set list, you know, songs that they will have years versus songs that they may only be hearing for the first time tonight. So yeah, it's, it's about time and, uh, and, and what they bring to it already and sculpting that. Yeah. It's making me crave the concert now. Oh. Yeah. Making me crave the concert. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, man, I can't, I mean that I keep saying to all the artists, I'm in the middle of collapsing. We've got literally, you know, three or four stage sets sitting in a in a workshop in Philadelphia, half built mm. and ready to go. And I've been because I've been doing this book, I've been interviewing some of the musicians I work with, and we just sit there going that night when that we night get people together. Whenever it happens, I might be grey haired by then. But <laughs> cannot wait. I thought it was so interesting what you were saying about all those different senses and the psychology and sort of creating an experience that is weighing into all those little different moments and feelings and mindsets. And I was wondering, because, I mean, you, you, you play musical instruments, right? You, you, I, I've heard you play the violin. And I was, I was wondering whether now hearing about your craving and your addiction, you know, to these buzzing spaces, do you also have a preference for maybe quiet, more contemplative arenas or are we having, having a bit too much of that lately? <laughs> Listen, I mean, I'm spoiled because um, it's, 
I probably thought when I was a kid because I played quite a lot of instruments. Um, and I, you know, to the detriment perhaps of each of them because I played the violin and I played the clarinet, I played the piano. Um, and, you know, each teacher would say, why don't you just concentrate on one? <laughs> Each one brought something so different because when you play the violin, it's your whole body. You get this beautiful sweep of the body like this, but you know it's quite hard to tune it. When you play the clarinet, you have this extraordinary precision because you know the note will be bang on. And then when you play the piano, you have access to a you know a much wider range really of sounds. But it but it's terribly difficult. Um, so so I didn't want to give up any of them. And and by the same token, I would say that each of these. I mean, Jeremy Deller and I did a, a talk together, which, um, you know, he was doing a few talks where he was talking about the look of music and mm, what does, what, mm, yes. um, and it's something that he, he and I share an interest in. Um, and, you know, I sort of come up from a slightly different perspective where I say some of these sculptures that I make on a stage with a musical performance, I see them somewhat as instruments um, and they're different instruments to play. So the Bush Theatre with 75 seats is one type of instrument. And it's an exquisite thing to play when something really goes off and you've got 75 people all, you know, caught in a beautiful cocoon and woven around with a web of storytelling with one extraordinary actor. Um, that's a very different instrument to, you know, the instrument you might play, play in, in, a, in a gallery where you have made an institution and the people who are on the frets and pulling the strings of it are anyone who turns up, you know, that's a very beautiful instrument. Just the, the audience feet pattering around without any clear instruction. Um, and then likewise, you know, the, the, the stadia that we've just talked about are an exceptionally powerful instrument, but then hard to really steer around. Right. So, um, yeah, it's hard to draw me on that because I really wouldn't be without any of them. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and it's a, a really great segue into, uh, your, your gallery based work, your artwork and, um, your work is often described as, um, mind bending and mind blowing. And, um, I know that's a lot of like headline grabbing, uh, verbiage. Um, but I think it also includes in there, um, the idea of, um, the mind and the body and anyone who's gone in to see your exhibition based work, um, really has a bodily experience. And I wonder if you could just, um, speak a bit more about, uh, the relationship between body and mind and, and what you're sort of asking um, of, of viewers to do when they're encountering your work? I mean, it's, it's a really well put question. And again, when we were talking to Wayne McGregor yesterday, we were talking about the etymology of the word choreography, meaning literally or with the body. Um, and because my practice came up through set design and indeed costume design, you know, I was drawing around the body not just with the architecture, you know, hugging the architecture, because architecture was born of the need of the story. You know, the architecture was never there at the beginning because it, because I wanted to put it there. It came out of the choreography of the movement of the performers and the needs of the storytelling. And then likewise, starting as I did, thinking as much about costume as environment. I, mean, I was always dealing with space uh, as a, a negative or a, a positive around a negative body space or a negative around a positive body space, whichever way you want to look at it. And what I began to do recently with a lot of the work is uh, try to place the viewer within it as a protagonist, uh, because it seems to me that that is happening anyway. And because my habit has always been uh, to frequent spaces in which performances happen, I guess my predilection when I walk into a gallery space 
is colored by that. So I'm kind of walking in in a time-based way. Mm. I'm not disregarding time. If I spend time with a, a sculpture, whether it uh, has a time-based element uh, consciously written into it or not, for me, it's a clock anyway. Um, and it marks out the time that I spent with it and the time that the light passed over it. Um, and, and equally, um, I consider myself to sort of become uh, a protagonist in relation to it because it's existing in relation to me. Uh, and the use of mirrors is, is, is sort of an exploration around that because it, it brings that very much to the surface. It says to anyone who walks in, you're really seeing the work uh, around yourself. Um, you're seeing yourself in context of the work and you can't really deny your own role as agent and protagonist. Mm. What you said just uh, earlier there about architecture and the architecture being born of of uh, the sort of narrative or the experience that you're trying to, to generate, would, do you see that as um, as opposite or different to how architecture is usually understood? It's very interesting because, again, with this book that we're doing, we, we, we interviewed Bjark Ingels to try and get under the skin of this, to try and uh, compare the thought process of an architect uh, and my approach to to space. Um, I, I think it varies, honestly, um, from architect to architect. I, I know that, to give you an example, Dennis Lasden, when he was asked to uh, design the National Theatre, resisted for 13 years, and he said he couldn't do it, as you probably know. Uh, and in the end, the way he cracked it was he said, I know how to design it now because I'm going to design all of the public areas, the foyer spaces, as performance spaces themselves. So he can of everything that goes on uh, with the public uh, in those spaces as spaces of civic performance. And, and that's why I think that building is so successful. Uh, and that's why so many uh, new pieces of work have been born in those spaces. Um, so, you know, to, to answer your question, um, you, you know, I, I think some architects do design around the story of, you know, the agency of the, the visitor to their space or the inhabitant of their space and others perhaps don't, but, but certainly um, for me, they're not, they can't be extract, extracted or abstracted the one from the other. Yeah. I really see how it, it loops in. And I wanted to just zoom back a little bit on the mediums that you used. You know, we were talking about sketching beforehand, but there's, very much a running thread of use of technology and especially cutting edge technology. And I have to say, when you were talking about different types of beams, I mean, you lost me. I was like, wow, <laughs> as this talking really about it reaches here, it reaches here. Um, maybe could you expand a little bit on, you know, being like the queen of digital projection? Um, what are the, you know? Yeah, I mean, the really interesting thing is I never, um, you know, set out to use a piece of technology. I always set out to, um, achieve an idea and and the technology then presents itself as to how I can manifest or express the idea so to give you a concrete example um when I went to meet with Hans Ulrich over a serpentine and Jana Peel and they were you know Jana had just come in and they were wanting to reinvent that serpentine party and I didn't really understand the party and I said <laughs> well, I don't understand it. it's a party but you have to pay for it and I don't really understand how you can be invited but you have to get no. a lot of <laughs> I, I can see so I said can you just like like how much do you need should we just go and borrow it you know why do we have to have a party I just didn't quite get the whole thing um and then they explained it to me you know that uh you know people paid but an artist comes for free if you're a rich person and you pay 
and uh, or you know you pay an artist gets to come and uh, that you know the, the money raised allows the serpentine to be free uh, for the rest of the year. So people like myself who you know visited the serpentine in the 90s uh, and had a big influence me. The work that I saw there I probably wouldn't have gone in if I'd if I'd had to pay during that time. So I said, okay, I get it now. Um, and it took me back to the work that I'd seen there in 2000, the Felix Gonzalez Torres work, which had really struck me because I just didn't know anything then. I wandered in and I saw this pile of sweets and, you know, <laughs> terms of engagement had been flipped and that I was allowed to take a suite. I mean, for us, in the context of the 80s, when I grew up, this, this work was so meaningful mm. in terms of transaction would be between an audience and a piece of work and then the fact that you walked into another room and there was the pile of all his art and it was take my art just take my art take my body take my art and th this had a profound effect on me and it came back to me being back in that space and talking to them about the party and I said well why don't we you know honor him with with something why don't we make uh, a collective piece of work that all of these people who bought a ticket they get to participate in an artwork and they get to take something home with them at the end. And it, it coincided with the fact that that week, a student, and I wish I could remember who she was, but a student had written to me saying, dear Ez Devin, would you donate a word to my essay? And I thought it was such a lovely- Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> asked to donate um, stuff, but it was beautiful to be asked to donate some breath um, and a word. So I had this in my mind and I said, look, why don't we just get everyone to donate a word and then we need to create a collective poem. And then each person will take a fragment. And because I was in this mode of um, how do you make uh, each participant the protagonist? And I love the idea of this passport photo booth because I love the idea of dignifying this act of selfie taking, you know, rather than eschewing it as something cheap and crap, I'm much more inclined always to explore it and say, well, mm. what's really at work here? And how could it, a selfie be actually an act of self-portraiture. How can we dignify it into be an act of interesting self-portraiture rather than dismissing it? Because um, I'm always interested in things if lots of people are doing them and I want to get under the skin rather than just dismiss them as common, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so all of these things fused together. And of course, then we needed to make a poetry generating machine. So it's at that point. I love that. Um, you know, so I didn't think, oh, I want to work with AI. I just was, you know, all of the things I just told you. And then Hans Ulrich and Yana said, well, you must meet Freya Murray from Google Arts and Culture, and she will know how you can make a poetry generating machine. And sure enough, she knew a man who'd already made one. <laughs> it's called Ross Goodwin. And so we began collaborating with him. And so that journey into collective uh, machine learning poetry began. And it's now... You know, each year there's been a new project. One was in Trafalgar Square, which was sort of my response to Brexit, wanting to see what those lines would say if they could speak and what would, what would they say if we could, you know, feed words into their mouth and project them up uh, Nelson's column. And now there's the really grand scale of it. We did a, a, another one at the V&A, which was around Christmas and what would happen if a Christmas tree could accept a word from everyone and then broadcast a collective carol. And then the big one now is this huge 20 meter high building for the World Expo. Yes. Brilliant, which will now be, and we're now working with a different uh, creative technologist called Kyle McDonald, who's probably one of the cleverest people, like, cleverest people I've ever come across. Um, I've come across lots of clever people. And he 
is he's refined this algorithm now, which it's it's actually almost terrifying um, because it really writes good poetry. Uh, at the beginning, you know, the poetry was cute in a sort of fortune cookie kind of way. <laughs> now, and he, he taught me this actually. We were sitting in Los Angeles uh, watching rehearsals for an amazing Meredith Monk opera, Atlas, that we were working on, and he said, "As this algorithm." You know, we're going to have to give it a reading list. We've got to train it up. It, whatever wow. we read um, will, will influence the quality of its writing. So we're kind of like parents to it. Uh, and if we train it on the wrong things, it will, um, you know, be taught uh, whatever, it, whatever we give it to read. So we've been training it now for the last two years, um, like diligent parents. And, yeah, it's it's pretty smart now. So... Yeah, that that goes on and on. Wow, and so and that and that AI is, um, as you mentioned, it's I mean, it's super exciting. Is the the being um, within this pavilion, which anyone who's listening to this should, when they get the chance, go and, and look up what's going to be a spectacular building yeah. in Dubai, which is now twenty twenty one, I think. Um, but could you just give us, an, in a nutshell, the relationship of that that space, that building, and how that AI folds into it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of the apogee of this body of work in a way. Um, it is an instrument, this building. It's very clearly manifests as a huge conical um, horn. You know, it's a big horn-shaped instrument um, because it was commissioned at a time when I was in... I, I had a very complex relationship with, with this competition. I was invited to compete to, to design the UK pavilion at the World Expo. However... I was in great disagreement with the government over many of its um, ideas, but especially leaving the European Union. So it, it felt to me, you know, I had previously been engaged in expressing the nature of this country in the Olympic ceremonies. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's always a, a position of great conflict. How do you, with so many people, with so many voices, uh, re- really try to hold your own uh, and, and, and do justice to the responsibility of trying to express your country uh, in an event or an artwork uh, or, a, or a building in this case. Um, so I thought the best way really was to um, move forward with this idea of collective generation of poetry. It seemed to me important to express our country uh, as a place where everyone has a voice and a place where voices from every country would be gathered uh, and combined to make a collective message. Um, because I felt so strongly um, against the idea of separating in any way from connections to other countries in the world. It just seemed like a, a very retrograde step to me. So I guess I wanted to kind of sew the pieces back together. Uh, in- mm-hmm. So what will happen is, by all accounts, 25 million people are anticipated to visit the site during the six months that it'll be open. And each one will be able to donate a word as they enter the building. And as they pass through the building, uh, they will arrive in a big conical um, chamber inside where all of the words will be flashing up in LED. And there's a big soundscape, which is a project that will begin actually quite soon in England, drawing from uh, as many choirs, you know, Bangladeshi Welsh choirs uh, or choirs. (laughs) That's amazing. You know, Sussex uh, and Bulgaria combined. You know, I really want to emphasize what I value about this country. Mm -hmm. Um, which is the fusion of cultures and the opposite to the exclusion of anything. Um, so you'll hear that vocal uh, cacophony and see the 
it's a cacophony of words. And then when you come out the front of the building, there's an enormous facade um, where uh, the collective poem that will be generated by this algorithm uh, will constantly be updating itself and flowing. Um, so yeah, it went a long way from uh, the Serpentine Party. And <laughs> but without that, probably wouldn't have happened. So it's, yeah, a, it's a key. If, if somebody uh, invites you to design their party, don't snub it. You know, have, have a go. See what you can find in it. You'll see what generates and what continues building and creating. And I mean, something that you kept on saying, as which I really, which really resonated, was the idea of like connection. And it's really beautiful to be. I think sometimes people think of the digital as something that separates people from one another or from their everyday life. But on the contrary, here you are connecting, you know, thousands and millions of people together. And you know, I feel that you know, words, literature. This is something that has inspired your work and it's not just been with other humans creating, it's also been science and so many other different sources of inspiration. And I was wondering whether you could touch a little bit on, you know, this continued pluralism that seems, um, you know, continued in your approach and practice. I, that, you've asked such a rich question there. I just want to remind myself the bits that I want to answer as I'd love to talk about Carlo. <laughs> Remind me not to forget that as I go on. But uh, to your very first point about digital and physical um, or, you know, digital and, and human connection and, and what the digital really means. Um, it, it's something that I've been, obviously, all of us have been, you know, brought up with an accelerated um, motion towards during this lockdown period. And I've been giving it a lot of thought. Um, and... One of the things I'm really interested to explore is the porosity between the digital and the physical mm. uh, and the way that the digital can be a portal to the physical. Um, and in the work that I'm making at the moment, actually, which we, we probably by the time you put this out, be okay to announce it, which is a big new piece with um, Pace Gallery's new uh, venture called Super Blue in Miami, which is due to open in November. Um, that work will invite you in the first instance to do something physical and local. So you'll be invited uh, in order to participate in the work, the first part of your engagement will be to go to a tree and you can pick mm. any. Um, and then you'll be invited to take your tree into this digital portal um, and you'll be, you know, taken on, a, on an adventure. And then by the end of it, you'll come out with something physical, which will be a fusion of your tree and an understanding of uh, the tree-like structures that are within your own lungs. Mm. So I'm really interested that the, the digital doesn't become an end in itself. I think being amphibious between these two worlds is, is, is what really intrigues me. Um, so that was the first part I wanted to answer on the digital connectivity point. And I do think, you know, generally what we're exploring are how do we, you know, with, with the onset of, ever more prescient need, ever more pressing need to reduce the carbon footprint of what we do. Um, how do we convene locally uh, and yet cross-broadcast these conventions globally, right? So how do we still have that sense of what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation of us as bodies gathering locally, yeah. uh, but also, um, you know, know that we can't be so profligate of touring things around the planet so the, the local, physical, digital, global um, 
interweaving is something we'll be looking at in great detail. And then uh, to this kind of plurality of influence and intrigue, I mean, I've been doing quite a lot of teaching lately. And the thing I end up saying at every mm-hmm. lecture is, you know, when they say, what's the most important thing? I just say curiosity. Um, and I am, you know, end- <laughs> endlessly and, uh, uh, you know, endlessly curious. And, um, yeah, the collaboration with Paolo Rivelli would sort of perhaps be one extremity of this um, uh, plurality in that I had read his book, The Order of Time, and it really came at a time in my, my life where I just had, I was reading less, yeah. and I read an awful lot, and it really, uh, and I think a lot of us felt this, I wasn't at all alone in feeling this, this sense of when I used to get lost in a book, and what happened to my mind, and what happened sort of neuroscientifically when I was lost in a book, and how, you know, the, the quality of uh, the movement in my mind shifted, and I missed that. And I found that whenever I was about to get really lost in a book, my hand would twitch over to my phone and yeah. just do something with it and break the spell. So I, I also uh, had in mind the fact that when I go and sit in the theatre is one of the few times when I don't go twitch from my phone because it's off. And when I go to watch a Wagner's Ring Cycle, uh, that's in hours. It's, it's, <laughs> I've sat through it. It's long. <laughs> German isn't fluent. It's actually, when you look at it, it's 16 hours of reading, right? You are generally reading the, 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 the subtitles for 16 hours. So I had this thought, and Hannah Barry and her wonderful um, art centre in Peckham, The Bold Tendencies, had just uh, commissioned from the wonderful architects Cook Fawcett a beautiful uh, observatory, which really had very similar proportions to this subtitle screen that I had been used to looking at in opera for many hours. And I thought, well, what if we gathered 2,000 people on the roof and it's as if we were doing an opera, but we just took all of the opera away and just put the subtitle on screen and invited people to read a book. And because I had just read Carlo's book, I thought, well, this is a book a lot of people might not read. So let's invite them and we'll, we'll condense it to 24 minutes. So, <laughs> so I rather audaciously took Carlo's book and did a 24-minute edit on it. <laughs> My first thought was that people would just stand there for 24 minutes and read it. But then it, when I discovered that Benedict Cumberbatch had done the audio book, it seemed pretty rude to not ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Benedict's voice. We added some, some music and some, we kind of played with this text. So it wasn't just a straight, cold um, uh, subtitle. It was subtitle, somewhat treated, a treated subtitle, let's say. And we invited 2,000 people on the roof. And of course, it had been the most beautiful weather all weekend. Just an hour before this event, it started raining. And it rained, you know, with fabulous intensity. And one thing I hadn't considered was the fact that if anyone put their umbrella up, no one would be able to see the subtitle screen. So I had to get up and make an announcement and say, I know this it feels a little inconvenient, but in order to experience this work, we must all stand and get soaking wet. <laughs> which everybody did yeah and one of the most moving evenings I must say that some people decided and the more I think about it now in the context of the current pandemic the more moved I am that that everybody did it um so yeah yeah another uh, yeah another sort of um good result of endless curiosity lovely lovely themes in there and endless um curiosity but also collectivity and and time has been such a great theme through through this uh 
through these questions. Which brings us to our final question, as and it's one that we ask all of our guests. And it's if you could offer or what creative inspiration do you have for our listeners? I mean, I think curiosity comes from uh, the same root, and you two will know this, uh, as care. So kuras means to care, and it obviously leads to curate. Mm. Yeah. Um, so to be curious is to care. Um, and I think it's some it's, it's somewhere in between those two things, right? Because one can be endlessly curious and sort of never really pin anything down. We touched at the beginning on this conversation of how you actually make a mark to hold on to something that could otherwise be purely uh, passing. Um, so I think it's a combination of the curiosity and the caring um, and caring enough to, to, to put oneself it always. I mean, the, the most rich and creative thing I think you can do is put yourself in someone else's perspective. Um, and now more than ever, uh, as we move through these very, very difficult and challenging uh, next few months. So, so I think a combination of curiosity and caring uh, is probably the most creative and inspiring uh, advice I can give to anyone looking for uh, inspiration. That's really beautiful, ending with this highly empathetic note. <laughs> um, as uh, if people want to find out more about you, I guess they can Google, um, but if you have uh, certain details you'd like to plug in. Yeah, I mean, listen, this this lockdown, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it um, earlier, but this lockdown has, you know, led to me being on my own in the studio. Not so much now, we have a few people coming in, but at the beginning for the first three weeks, I've not been on my own in the studio for a long time. And it was pr pretty pretty good for me, I think. And I did take the time to self-film this. Uh, I mean, it's called a masterclass, but it's really just watching me do my thing. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's this Culture in Quarantine BBC Masterclass um, where during the course of a day, um, I take you through uh, the process from ideation, research, sketching into finally making a piece of work, in this case, a, a small paper sculpture, um, and then to bringing some of the layers of projection mapping onto it that characterise some of my larger work. Um, and I think that's a pretty good introduction to, to my practice, really. For sure. Thank you very much. And um, we'll flag that in, in the show notes. Um, but also everyone should go look at um, Ez's Instagram, which is really lush, full of great imagery. Um, but all that remains is to thank you so much for joining us and for such an insight into your, your practice and work, Ez. Really appreciate it. Thank you, thank Ez. You. Format, by the way, between two curators is a, <laughs> it's actually not something I've come across before, but it's a really nice format of feeling like you're somewhat as an interviewee being held between the two, <laughs> right? Helpfully um, in a supportive way, not not a sort of <laughs> police interview way. No, it, it's, a <laughs> it's a novel structure. And I hadn't, when you invited me to do this, I hadn't really given the structural aspect of it too much thought, but I think it's very interesting. And I don't know if anyone else is doing it, are they? It seems quite uh, innovative to me and interesting. So... I'll be Thank reading. You. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. And please join us next time for more creative chat. Bye.